0: a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles, Picnicwear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity—future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's where W E A R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope ass shit for dope ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple, hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at LatetothePartyPeople. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at Vino.Vintage so you don't miss our next event. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at Dylanpage Life and Style. Salt Hats: purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at Browse our online store at ThumbprintDetroit.com and find us on Instagram at ThumbprintDetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of July, St. Evans is supporting For the Girls, a black trans-led collective that fundraises to help black transgender people pay for rent, gender-affirming services, other medical expenses, and the associated travel costs. New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear_st_evens. That's WearsaintEvans. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family friendly record shop in the country. Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that always wants to pay for shipping. I'm your host, Amanda, and today we're going to revisit one of my favorite myths to debunk around here, the myth of free shipping. And I have an extra special expert guest to help me do that, and that person is Bethany, who recently wrote an article for Closehorse.world about Free shipping not being free, one of my favorite things to yell about. (laughs) Bethany is a writer working in the trucking industry, so she's going to help us break down all the people and money involved in getting stuff to stores, to warehouses, and to us. And while trucking might seem invisible to us as we're curled up on the couch about to check out our shopping cart, trucking is a major industry and At this point, we couldn't survive without it. In the before times, when I say that, I mean 2019, the trucking industry hauled about 73% of all freight transported in the United States, which means all the shit we bought or didn't buy but somehow appeared in stores or on websites. That was $11.84 billion. Tons of stuff. Cars, clothes, medicine, Peloton bikes, cat food, lumber, returned orders. You name it, most of it traveled by truck. And the trucking industry was a $792 billion industry in that same year, representing 80% of the nation's total freight bill. Yes, companies spent almost $800 $800 billion dollars just moving stuff around from ports to warehouses to stores to post offices to your front porch. Someone has to pay that shipping bill. But since we just added an extra pair of socks to our cart to qualify for free shipping, I guess it isn't us, right? Or is it? Oh, you already know what I'm going to say, but bear with me. <laughs> until our purchases start teleporting into our houses which would be pretty cool shipping isn't free i mean let's let's think about that journey let's close our eyes and picture the box in the warehouse no it it actually starts even before that this is making me think of the intro sequence for the Jim Jarmusch film Broken Flowers highly recommended It follows a letter from its creation literally being typed on a typewriter because, of course, this is a Jim Jarmusch film. No one's typing something out in Notepad and printing it out, okay? This is happening on a typewriter. And then it follows the letter being put into an envelope, dropped in the mailbox, and then the journey really begins. Trains and planes and trucks and sorting machines, all of these different vehicles, places, and people, all of these stops until it reaches its final destination, the recipient's mailbox. And this entire montage, oh, it's so good. I just rewatched it. I had to pause to watch it. <laughs> this whole montage takes place while a Holly Lightly song plays in the background. Highly recommend it. I have to go rewatch this movie ASAP. Anyway, I'm going to link to that intro in the show notes, because even that, it shows that the simplest thing, a letter has quite a journey and is touched by many, many workers along the way. But let's say you ordered a dress. You were a few dollars away from that free shipping. So you added a pair of socks. Classic move. Raise your hands. I'm raising mine. If you have way too many socks, thanks to shenanigans like this. See also scrunchies. See also makeup brushes see also random soaps (laughs) okay so you pay you added your free shipping thing you know you paid and you receive your confirmation email what happens next well first your order is pulled in a warehouse it's called picking Some warehouses have special efficiency software that sends the person picking your order and several other orders at the same time on a very precise journey through the shelves and racks. So, not a single step is wasted. And that saves the company money in terms of time. They can churn out more orders with less people, right? Your particular item or items are tossed into a bin and then passed on to packing, where another person tapes up a box adds all of your stuff, the packing slip, any other tchotchkes or swag that the brand is adding, then that's all taped shut, the shipping label is added, and it joins other packages on a pallet. And by the way, the box, the labels, the tape, the bubble wrap, the stickers, etc., that all costs money too. Okay, next, the shipping carrier, whether that's UPS, FedEx, USPS, or even DHL, they show up. They pick up the pallets of outbound shipments and then they head off to a hub where they're unloaded by more people. Then they're sorted by people. They're grouped together by final destination, then packed up onto more pallets and sent off to the shipping hub nearest to you. There, it's it's unpacked again, it's sorted, and it's sent out on smaller trucks to your porch. Quite a journey, right? Lots of people. It goes without saying Okay, well, maybe I should just say it just in case that the retailer who sold you the stuff pays for the shipping, right? Like UPS isn't doing it for free or cutting them a hot deal or being like, hey, I'm going to do you a solid because you've been so great to me. No, UPS needs that money because they have to pay for gas for all of those trucks and airplanes the electric bills for the sorting facilities, maintenance on all those trucks and planes, the wages of so many workers. You know, we've got the drivers, the pilots, the sorters, the customer service agents who deal with your lost packages. Then they've got their own human resources and accounting departments and who knows who else, but it all adds up. And the retailer, in addition to paying for shipping and packaging, also has to pay the people who picked and packed your order. So we just have so much money spent to get that order to your door. But what if, and this is a very common if, you returned that order? Well, just imagine everything I just explained, all of those airplanes and trucks and sorting and hubs and you name it, happening in reverse. When you buy something that has free shipping and then return it for free, well, the company just lost 10 to $20 on you. And that might not sound like a lot, but when you realize that about a third of all orders are returned, you see that it's a losing proposition for a lot of retailers. Big businesses have been luring us in with promises of free shipping. It gets us to spend more money more often, which, as you know, in the world of fast fashion, is the name of the game to get you to shop as often as possible and buy as many items as possible each time. That free shipping threshold isn't a coincidence. In the industry, and like the warehouse logistics game, if you're already paying someone to pick two items, it's practically free to have them pick a third or a fourth or a fifth. So the more items you buy in one order, the more profitable it is for the retailer. Time after time after time, surveys and consumer insights research have indicated that customers are more likely to shop with a brand if they offer free shipping and free returns. 70% of all orders are abandoned before finishing checkout. And I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm a big part of that because I have stuff in carts all over the internet. Well, maybe not anymore, but man, in the pre-pandemic era of my life, I found so much just relaxation from putting things in carts that I never intended to buy. Hopefully I'm not the only one out there. But nonetheless, 70% 70 of all orders are being abandoned. And it's not all just me because actually half of those orders are being abandoned because customers perceive that the shipping costs are too expensive. And furthermore, they would have not abandoned their orders if the shipping were free. doesn't sound like a very big deal for someone to abandon something that isn't actually real in the first place. But let me tell you, cart abandonment is a metric that e-commerce managers literally fret about. So they come to internal business meetings with the suggestion that it's time to lower the free shipping threshold from say $100, that's where it always used to be. I swear everyone was at $100 for a long time, right? Your e-commerce manager might come in and say, let's drop it to 50, which is more standard now I would say I I encounter that free shipping threshold far more often than I do $100. Your e-commerce manager also might just say, let's eliminate the cost of shipping altogether or do a whole week of free shipping or maybe just on this holiday. But like, let's get some free shipping in there. And to be fair, everywhere I've worked, everywhere, no matter who our customer was, we have found that free shipping equals a Massive increase in sales. And so there would be times where we would be heads down in a series of spreadsheets trying to figure out where was the tipping point? How many extra sales could we do before the free shipping started to hurt our business? Like, where is that divide? Or could we do such a massive amount of increased sales that? the shipping wouldn't matter anymore. Like where's that sweet spot and how do we get there? And that would help us determine how long we could run a free shipping promo because if you're in a smaller business, it's devastating, right? But you want those sales. You want people to buy your stuff. It's funny that that's all it takes to convert a customer into actually sticking with that cart and checking out. It basically removes the risk, that sense of risk, that a customer has around paying for shipping. And they'll just open their wallets because, after all, if the order doesn't work out and they return it all, also for free, what did they lose? Nothing. But if they had paid for shipping, they would be out $10 or $20. So it's great for the customer, but retailers, they're out $10 to $20. They're still paying for all those shipping expenses. They know it's what they have to do. So they make it up in other ways because, and I cannot emphasize this enough, I want you to imagine that I'm saying this in all caps. There is no way in hell that a retailer is just going to accept making a little less profit so that you can have free shipping. You're probably not going to be surprised to hear this, but we all pay for that shipping in other ways. The retailer is not truly at the end of the day eating that cost of shipping. For one, the retailer might increase the retail prices of what we buy, or more likely, especially when we're talking about fast fashion, living in this era of fast fashion where everything must feel like a hot deal, they will realize that raising prices is probably a losing situation. Raising prices equals lower sales and it defeats the whole illusion of free shipping in the first place, right? So instead, the retailer will increase the profitability of each item. What does that mean? It means they make more money off of the sale of each unit, which means decreasing the cost to make that item. So that means the usual array of cheaper fabrics, cheaper trims, less fittings, you know, more meetings where you hear someone say, well, it'll fit someone, less details, So say goodbye to those pockets. There is a direct correlation between all your dresses not having pockets and free shipping. And of course, they're also going to squeeze the factory on costing, which means, as we all know by now, we're all experts in this, squeezing the workers who make our clothes, paying them less and less what else might a retailer do to cover the cost of free shipping? Well, they won't offer benefits and good wages to their warehouse workers, their retail workers, even their corporate employees. They cut the insurance coverage. They turn the thermostat just a little bit lower during the winter. They keep as many employees as possible just under full-time hours, so they aren't required to provide benefits. Trust me, that shipping cost will be made up somewhere. Furthermore, they are going to negotiate their pricing with shipping carriers. Then the shipping carriers like UPS or FedEx will cut their budgets, which inevitably affects employees, while also driving up the costs for all of us, all of us individual people, when we want to ship something ourselves. We're paying a lot more to ship than, say, GAP is. And these renegotiations of these large-scale contracts also drive up shipping costs for smaller businesses who don't have the leverage of the big retailers. We're all paying for shipping, even when we think we aren't. Is free shipping a scam? A myth? A fairy tale? An illusion? Pick your favorite term and go with it. But no that shipping is never free, and someone somewhere is always paying for it. Okay, well now that I've gotten us all riled up, let's jump into my conversation with Bethany. Bethany, why don't you introduce yourself to everyone?
1: My name is Bethany, and I work in the trucking industry in Arkansas. Um, And in Arkansas, trucking is... Like one of the biggest careers, one in 10 people in the state actually work in the industry. Um, and I got here by way of writing. Um, I studied, um, rhetoric and nonfiction in school and, um, I graduated in 2008, 2009 when it didn't really matter what you studied, you still couldn't get a job. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> and so I worked some retail and I got married and I moved abroad, um, and taught English as a second language and, um, to condense all that into a few years. When I came back, I decided to go to grad school. And when I was in grad school, I worked for a trucking broker. So I kind of took my skills of writing. Um, and then I happened to get a job where I was just in an accounting department of a trucking broker. And I mean, they're the middleman between like, I have something to ship, I need to find a driver, I need to find a company. The broker is the person who can make that happen. Um, and that job is kind of what I did while I was advancing my writing skills and getting a, a grad degree. And now I work actually in the industry and I work for a trade organization and I'm the managing editor of a trucking magazine. Um, wow. And so um, I'm really interested in fashion and I always have been and telling stories. And so um, I've kind of married those things to um, transportation and getting all of the things that you have in your house um, from one place to the other. Um, So that's, that's what I do. And
0: that's what I'm interested in. I mean, that's, that's already a very fascinating story right there. (laughs) Also that there's a trucking magazine. I feel like Dustin probably wants a subscription to that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I'm excited to talk about the trucking industry because, well, for one, as I told you, when I reached out to you, you know, There are a lot of truckers in my family. There are a lot of people who work in dispatch, who are mechanics, who are involved in the trucking industry. Lots of CDLs, commercial driver's licenses, in my family. I come from rural Pennsylvania where being a trucker is a pretty solid career path. Very common, right? Um, It's changed a lot since I was a little kid even as more and more of the smaller Transport companies were sort of absorbed by larger ones. I'm sure you know a ton about about that. But, Mm -hmm. you know, my brother's a truck driver, and he dreamed of being a truck driver even when he was a little kid. Like, all he wanted to do was draw pictures of big rigs. So (laughs) it's to me, it's been something I've always been aware of. But as I moved into my career in fashion, I realized that most people – don't understand how things get to us. They have a vague idea. They know there might be ships involved or airplanes. They know that the UPS truck comes to their houses, but in general, the trucking industry is is kind of invisible. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing to me because I was doing some reading and 70% of all freight that is transported annually in the US is delivered by trucks.
1: Yeah. Well, and so I live in Arkansas and we, we have some rivers. Um, there's some small airports, there's some train tracks, but like, when you think about it, like every town has roads, but every town does not have a port every town. So if you're Mm -hmm. anywhere rural, like your truck is the only option. Um, the stores are not having, you know, a train track roll up behind them. You don't have an airport in your backyard. Like that's the only way. And in my state, um, like it's 87% of the communities. The only way they get anything in, in or out of that is through trucks. And particularly through COVID um, we had to have, you know, supplies and medicine, uh, toilet paper, (laughs) all of that. Um, the only way that you could get that, the only way you could stay in your home and stay safe is if truck drivers did not stop moving. Like they
0: had no option to stay home. Right. Um, because you can't stay home if they stay home. It's true. It's essential. I mean, all the men in my family were still working, you know? Mm-hmm. So your essay for Close Horse. World was essentially about how, you know, one of my favorite things to point out that shipping is never free. I want to talk about all the money and manpower that's involved. And I I tried to make a list of the positions behind the scenes that are part of this. I'm sure I've missed some. So if I missed a step along the way, holler at me. But okay. there's a, this is a massive industry that employs a ton of people. I mean, it makes sense to me that so many people in Arkansas are involved in the trucking industry. But that number you gave at the beginning really blew my mind. Yeah, Arkansas, It that is the...
1: Like the most per capita people that don't work in a government job and are just working in the public sector, it's one in 10. Um, But we also have Walmart in our state, we have JB Hunt, FedEx. Um, So we have some of the bigger ones. But honestly, like most companies have less than six trucks. You know, like Uh you think of the big people, but 90% 90% of the industry is running on less than 20 trucks or a company that has less than six trucks. It's really small businesses.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. My Uncle George, who I've mentioned on the podcast before, the ultimate scammer, he has his own trucking company. He's got like three or four trucks, maybe. Yeah, right. And he does all right. It sounds really stressful, though, actually. Uh, <laughs> my... Grandma kind of helps him out as both, I think, a broker and a dispatcher. I'm not really sure. She's always on the phone. (laughs) So, okay, let's start with brokers. What do they do? What's their part here? So a broker
1: is a middleman. Perhaps you don't have a big organization or a big corporation where you are scheduling shipments out every Tuesday at 10 o'clock. Maybe you have sporadically um, shipments that need to go out and you need to find a trucker to match to that load. Um, and so brokers can help you find someone and find them for the, the right price. Um, when I worked for a third-party um, broker, What we had LTL and in the industry that stands for less than truckload. Um, Mm. So that would be a big truck that is divided up into a bunch of different shipments. And then we have truckload where that entire trailer is full of one customer's goods. Um, And so a broker can help you if you are not a regular or um, if you don't have a transportation department. Like can help you make that that happen without you having to have. A transportation department in your, your company. Or if you're just as maybe you're moving across the country. Yeah. um, And you need a mover. um, So you do actually need a truckload for that particular job, but you don't need it every Monday at 10. Right. Something like
0: that. Right. Yeah, I've definitely moved using brokers like that. Specifically, I remember when we moved from L.A., to Portland, Dustin found a service that shipped LTL. Um, but yes. when you were talking about LTL, I was getting all these flashbacks because <laughs> even as a buyer, you know, I would be involved in this stuff. Like when I worked for a mm-hmm. large company, we had a traffic department. I still had to interact with them and talk about like shipment issues that we might be experiencing and, you know, larger issues, that kind of stuff. Like we're going to need this as fast as possible. What can we do? Or if like this would happen a lot where vendors would accidentally ship to our office, for example. And you're like, what is wrong with you? Instead of a store. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's get traffic involved. Um, But when I was working (laughs) in the startup area, I mean, working as director of merchandising, I was the director of everything about getting product to the store. So like I would be, you know, talking to tracking companies about like figuring out LTL shipments and how much it was going to cost and like when they could pick it up and the tracking for it and everything. So Brokers are involved with a lot of different people, you know, in a lot of different industries there. A broker becomes like a customer, uh, a large customer
1: of the trucking company, like of the carrier, um, but they may be serving a whole bunch of smaller ones. So, for example, the broker that I worked with, they became a broker because they were a company that was shipping a lot of things. Um, all over the world. And because they were shipping so often, they got really good prices from the carriers because they were shipping in bulk. Right. Well, they were able to use those prices to leverage and share them with their customers. So they started do offering that as a service to other customers and just built a separate business out of it. So, um, so the broker like becomes like a very like white collar kind of situation. Like I'm sitting in an office, but I'm helping connect a whole bunch of different people with a service that they need. And then what about dispatchers? So a dispatcher um, is someone that is connecting closer to like the route. Like, okay, you need someone to pick up at this time, at this location. Um, I can find you a driver that can do that for you. Um Dispatchers are also having to work with perhaps the driver's hours um, because trucking is a job that is safety related. And so you mm-hmm. can't just work all the time whenever you want to. You can only work so many hours a week um, for labor reasons, but also for safety reasons. Like even if you wanted to work 100 hours a week, um, unless you're getting exemptions, you can't do that because you're, you've are you got heavy equipment around other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you have a certain number of hours that you are allowed to work in a shift before you have to take a break. Um, You have a certain number of hours of week. Um, And then there's like any job, like the kind of break that you take, like, does it last this long? Are you actually off the clock? Um, Are you allowed to do paperwork on that? Um, Because there's driving time and non-driving time. Um, And all of that is related to um, safety and um, making sure that the the drivers are taken care of, you know, not going over what they should be. Mm -hmm. Dispatchers can help the customers find someone who has the hours to get to where they need to go, pick it up and Take it wherever else it needs to go um, to meet their deadlines because the drivers have the deadlines from the customers, but they're also working around all of those regulations.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember one time a couple of years ago, my grandma called me because, you know, she's a dispatcher too. And mm-hmm. uh, she was like, Hey, your uncle, his GPS isn't working. He's lost outside of Philadelphia. And if he, Doesn't immediately start heading home. He's going to be over on his driving hours, like, and he's freaking out. So she made me call him and give him directions using Google Maps (laughs) on my computer. um, Oh my gosh! (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But I mean, I've heard them talk about this kind of stuff. It's really stressful.
1: Yeah. So right now, uh, what I have spent like the last couple of weeks um, kind of fretting about is um, the bridge, there's two bridges that separate West Memphis from Memphis. um, And that basically is like what connects the west side of the country to the east side of the country. Like it's crossing the Mississippi River. Um, The state of Arkansas and the state of Tennessee share responsibility for the newer bridge. Um, Arkansas conducts um, inspections of it and Tennessee um, like oversees the project management Management of repair and um, that kind of thing, like fixing it if it needs to maintaining it. Well, they were a few weeks ago. They were doing a routine inspection and they found a crack in one of the beams. There's two beams. They found a crack in um, one of them, and um, the person that Arkansas had contracted to do that called nine one one and said, "We're doing this inspection. We found a crack. We need to evacuate the bridge." Right now, and close it. There cannot be traffic on this bridge. Whoa! Um, I like listened to the nine one one call. It was so it was so crazy to me. Um, But it shows the system is working because they were doing an inspection. They found something wrong, and they got people off. There was no no one was hurt or anything. Um, But infrastructure is like a whole different issue. But anyway, that (laughs) bridge every. Every truck that has to go across it, every person who lives on one side of the river that has to go to work on the other, suddenly, like the waits to get across the only other bridge to get across that river in that town um, became like two hours when it's normally wow. a 10 minute drive. And so, Some dispatchers, if they had enough lead time, like we can route around that Mm -hmm. um, so that you don't have to wait in traffic because it's expensive when you wait in traffic. You might run out of hours. There may not be a safe place to park Mm -hmm. your truck whenever you do, or there may not be facilities where you can um, take care of yourself when you do. So, yeah, dispatchers have also had to deal with um, the craziness of this infrastructure failure. because they're the ones that help drivers get where they're supposed to go and do that within all of the regulations.
0: It sounds like a very stressful job.
1: I mean, I think every job is stressful, but in (laughs) trucking, I think there is a lot of, you know, there's deadlines. So there's a lot of ways that, yeah, you can find stress (laughs) and amp it up. And, you know, in our country, Um, we built the interstate system, like, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, like, it's all old, Uh it's all crumbling. So, like, when you hear on the news that, like, infrastructure talks between, um, like, Biden's administration and um, the GOP, or with the progressives, like, all of those, like, while that is happening, while they are fighting over it, like, bridges around the country like need our help. They need our yeah. money. Um, so like we're just crossing our f- fingers like we need to get something done. Like let's include as much as we can. But um there are actual people who have to get to work on the infrastructure while we are fighting about it. Yeah,
0: no doubt. So next are the safety and maintenance professionals who keep these trucks going. Right. So,
1: safety professionals might um, also be people who are monitoring um, the hours that drivers are are um, operating. Oh. Um, but safety professionals could also be people who are doing training, who mm-hmm. are training the drivers. Mm-hmm. Um, safety professionals... Um, at larger companies may be running like an entire safety program and be um, monitoring like video cameras because some trucks have cameras that face out at the road. Some companies even have cameras that face the driver. So they could catch like if you um, have drowsy eyes or if you use your phone while driving or whatever, Um, like those things um, can capture unsafe behaviors. And so that trainer can monitor that and then they could have like a coaching session with the driver and say, Hey, we noticed these things happen so many times. Um, I, you know, like what can we do to correct those behaviors? Um, um, those things all definitely help. Um, I know I mentioned it in the essay, um, but a lot of the crashes that happen involving trucks are actually the fault of the passenger vehicles. Um, but I mean at that, once it happens, like it, it's not that it doesn't matter. It's just that once a, a giant truck is involved, like they become more serious, you know, like they weigh so much. They take so long to stop, um, that there's a lot, a lot of times like more injuries and more fatalities that happen from those. So they get, of course, a lot of coverage. Um, but the behaviors of the drivers around the trucks are really just as important as what the driver inside of the truck is doing. Um, so the safety professionals help the drivers be as safe as possible. They might um, do the drug testing. They might do recruiting um, and identifying, you know, like the best people for um, the the job. Um, recruiting and safety might work hand in hand to make sure that the best candidates are the ones that are on the road. And then maintenance professionals are the ones who are taking care of the equipment mm-hmm. um, because the equipment is heavy, Um And there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of computers that are inside of it. Um, And so it's not like maybe at once we thought that a technician was someone who, you know, had like a greasy wrench in a shop. (laughs) I mean, they're working on computers to fix these machines. Um, And when something goes wrong with the truck, like ultimately that is a safety issue as well. So the maintenance and the safety um, people are really the ones who are making sure that our
0: highways are places that are comfortable and safe to be. And have safety, like, I don't know, sort of the approach to safety, the concern about safety, has that changed over time?
1: I think so. Uh, I mean, I think one thing that happens in the industry is We know about all of the large companies, um, the large employers of drivers, um, but there's a whole bunch of small ones. And anytime there's any kind of crash and there's like a lawsuit that happens and there's like a a huge, like maybe it's like millions and millions of dollars that are awarded to the victim of that crash. There's not that many people that insure trucks. And so... Mm the insurance prices will go up for everyone. So even if you have a very safe program and never have crashes or have very few crashes compared to how many drivers you actually have out there, you are paying for the few crashes that cause those millions and millions of dollars settlements. Um, and so keeping it, the whole industry safe is a an industry-wide um, Approach campaign like it's a concern of the whole industry because when there's any kind of fatality, it affects the whole industry. Um, you know, like we may lose the driver because you don't want to be involved in that, like maybe you lose your license if it was your fault, or you just carry the trauma of what happened. Um, but also, like. Everyone literally does have to pay for that because even if you have a safe program and there aren't crashes in your company, the insurance rates go up Um, Mm. and often it's driving smaller carriers out of it. So we may be left with fewer small carriers and
0: we will only have the large ones. Yeah, that's so interesting because it does seem, just thinking about the companies that members of my family worked for in say the 80s and 90s. There are already a lot less smaller, or maybe more like a lot less medium-sized businesses. Yeah, um, I think like for example, my un- two of my uncles actually worked for Roadway for a really long time in the office. Oh yeah, and then they became like RPS, but then I think they were bought by YRC. Yes, yes, that's and then, yeah. yeah, and they became YRC. Yeah. Anyway, well, that's a great segue into like let's talk about the drivers. How. Does one become a truck driver? Because I am pretty sure that my brother wasn't like, okay, well, I got my CDL, now I'm just going to go drive. I think he spent a year or two where he was only allowed to like back trucks out or something like that. Like it wasn't, it wasn't just like, get on the road, the world is your (laughs) oyster. (laughs) How old was he when he started? Oh man, I want to say it was more like his late 20s because he actually Mm -hmm. had been working for Freightliner for a long time as like a parts expert. And so he would go around and deliver parts to everyone and help them find things that they couldn't track down. And uh, eventually one day he was just like, I think I just want to be a truck driver. That's what I always wanted to do (laughs) anyway. And so he went for it.
1: That's pretty common, like as far as like starting when you're in your later 20s or even later than that, because truck driving is often a second career for a lot of people. And one of the reasons for that is because you can't operate a commercial vehicle across state lines until you're 21. Ah. So there are people that may want to drive a truck at 18, but um, they can get their CDL, they can train, they can work with um, another driver, you know, like team drive or apprentice under someone, but they can't actually operate that truck across the state, across the boundary until they're 21, which in Arkansas, um, it takes like, I don't know, 10 hours to get from the very top of the state to the bottom. Like an 18-year-old could drive from the very top of our state to the very bottom of our state. Legally, totally fine. But they couldn't drive across that 10 minutes across the bridge from West Memphis to Memphis until they were 21. Um, And that's just because of federal rules. So, like, your state can say 18 is fine, Mm -hmm. but the federal government says 21. And there's a lot of campaigns to um, change that because if people want to drive at 18 and they can actually start learning how to drive and be a good, safe driver. that might be better um, for them to actually get started on that rather than go find another career, find out that's what they
0: don't want to do,
1: and then come <laughs> back to it later. Yeah. yeah <laughs> because that ca- happens for a lot of people. Yeah.
0: I'm, ca- I'm thinking that must have been what happened with my brother because I know when we were growing up, he always wanted to be a truck driver. And then when he turned 18, he started working at Freightliner instead. And I always thought that was really weird, but I didn't know that like that was the law. So it makes, it makes a lot more sense.
1: Yeah. So like my organization is working to like, is there a way that people could start to apprentice um, when they're 18? Or for example, veterans who come back from the military and they were 18 and operating like military equipment. (laughs) um, And yet we won't let them drive a truck full of pillows or I don't know, (laughs) whatever is inside. Yeah. You know, like, Why wouldn't they be able to do that? Um, And so is there a way that we could change that so that if somebody wants to drive a truck when they're 18, um, they would have a a place to do that and to start learning as early as possible? Because, I mean, it sounds like it might be a safety issue, right? Like the reason that a lot of the opponents of it are saying, like, we can't let teenagers out there on the road um, with those big, heavy trucks, Um, But we let them go to war and handle military equipment. If they come back and they have proved themselves responsible enough to do that, um, there might be a place for them to carry our freight. Um, And truck driving is a great pathway to the middle class um, because the pay is not that bad. Yeah. Um, Depending on you know what it is, what route you're doing, what company you're working for, if you are an owner operator versus an employee driver, like there's a bunch of different routes you could take in the industry, um, and I mean some people don't like their jobs. I'm sure that's true in every industry, but they might not be a fit for the type of driving that they are doing, right? Um, because there's good employers and there's bad employers. There's drivers who work for themselves and. Um, there's just a lot of different ways that you can do it. But, um, if you wanted to get started to, um, take care of your family or start a family or see the country, um, the pay is not that bad. <laughs> like it, it's a, it is a good job. And for a very long time, it was one
0: of the most obvious ways, um, that you could have a path to the middle class. You know, it's interesting because I've been reading And it's actually something Dustin and I have talked about a lot um, because we come from – both come from families of truckers. He's from West Virginia um, where Mm -hmm. a lot of people are truckers as well. And we've been noticing reading about how actually more and more immigrants are becoming truck drivers. We actually read an article – gosh, it was like a year or two ago about how – more and more truck stops have been offering like Indian food, Ethiopian yeah. food, different kinds mm-hmm. of food because so many truck drivers are no longer, you know, white guys, you know? Mhm. And I thought that was really interesting that that shift is happening, but if you think about it, it's an amazing way to see the country and like you said, it can be a good living.
1: Yeah, so I I pulled it up cuz I thought about that. So, um the demographics, the non-minorities make up 58.5, but minority drivers are 41.5. Wow. So it's not like an even split, but it's not a tiny sector of the industry. Um, and of course, like just saying like by race, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're immigrants, mm-hmm. um, but that for sure would capture some of them. And um, there's one particular um, pay model or um, workforce model, labor model, the owner-operators, that some of those people may still have family somewhere else. When you're an owner-operator, you know, like, you kind of, you control your day. Um, you control your shifts and your hours and all of that. Like, someone is giving you the opportunity to do the job, but they're not your boss. Mm more or less. And so if you want to work 10 months out of the year and take 2 months off and go somewhere else to see your family or whatever, um you are not employed by that company who tells you no we give you 2 weeks a year and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um for some people that works and for some people for sure that I'm sure it doesn't, but when you think about people that may be coming here from other countries and their whole family may maybe not here, or a part of their family that they want to spend time with, um, that's a model that might work
0: for them. So do the drivers themselves, like I'm assuming an owner-operator owns their truck, right? But if you work for a, a company, you wouldn't own the truck, or am I wrong? No, you're right. Okay, okay, good.
1: Um, you are right, but there's, there's a crazy driver shortage right now. The average age of um, drivers is the late fifties, I believe. Wow. And, you know, part of that is just because people can't start when they're eight, you know, th- mm-hmm. they can't, that can't be your first job if you're coming out of school. Right. Um, unless you go to like a four-year college and then decide not to use that degree and get a CDL instead. Cause a CDL doesn't take that long, mm-hmm. you know, six months, maybe. Um, it less, if you were just, you know, studying on your own, taking the test, um, or, there's different training programs for that. But um, yeah, there's not a lot of young people coming into the career. The workforce is aging. And so one of the ways that companies can attract um, drivers is by, um, they don't like give them the truck, but it is um, an incentive to have the best trucks you know, with the best things inside, um, (laughs) the most comfortable, um, as a way to attract the best drivers, because you want, you want a nice, you know, like for some, for those that are over the road drivers, which means they're out for two, three, four weeks at a time, you know, traveling across the country. Um, they are going to spend a lot of time. They're going to like live in their truck for a part of the time. And so you want it to be like a little apartment. Like you want it to have a TV. You want it to have a comfortable bunk, Um, perhaps a place to cook your own meals or to store exercise equipment because all the things that you're doing to take care of yourself are happening in that cab.
0: Wow. Interesting. I'm sure that uh, truck technology has it changed significantly since the last time I was in a truck, like, you know, when I was in maybe middle school. Um, oh, right. <laughs> I, I mean, I couldn't even, didn't even imagine that you might be able to like cook your food or something in there. Um, I mean, I think you have to have like a hot plate or, um, I don't know if you can have a microwave. I think some of the
1: like really nice ones probably do have something like that, but it's also a really sedentary job. Mm-hmm. And so, Um, the health of drivers is a concern because if you're eating at truck stops, like you are not having like the most options of healthy things or variety. Um, And then you're also like your job is to stay seated for most of the day, unless you're checking the truck, you know, you have to do a pre-check on your truck where you're walking around and checking the tires and um, all of the connections and those things, or you're at the, um, the shippers, um, and you're, you know, dropping things off, um, most of the job you're sitting down. And so we know that that's not conducive to the most healthy lifestyle. And so, yeah, you might, if you want to take care of yourself, you might be trying to find ways to, um, have a crock pot in your truck that, you know, if you're for your overnight hours, like you could be cooking something, um, I know a lot of drivers do things like that because, I mean, if you've ever been <laughs> on a long road trip, like, you will get sick of the things that are offered to you that are all, like, processed oh, and full of sugar. Like, yeah.
0: I love them. But, yeah, I have a breaking point where it's actually not a treat anymore. No, you feel terrible. Totally. Totally. I mean, I know that that's something that my brother has talked about, that, like, you just you get sick of it, you know? <laughs>
1: Yeah, with any job, whatever was like the novelty that drew you to it, like, becomes <laughs> the job. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I mean, would you say, um, okay, first off, I have a question. How much mm-hmm. is a truck? Oh, I mean, I don't know off the top of my head. I have no idea either. I'm
1: going to Google it. Super expensive, like $130,000? 60000 <laughs>
0: Like, for a cheaper one? That sounds right. Dude. I know, that's a big range. How do these like owner operators pay for that? Because that's a crazy startup
1: cost. I guess they must have payments, right? I know you can finance those things. um, And some of them may be driving for someone else. A lot of people get started that way. Mm -hmm. They are employed by someone else and are saving up their money so that they can do the same thing but be their boss. Mm, Yeah. Smart. You know, does that make sense? No, it totally makes sense. Um, Yeah. And so like there was my particular organization, we have a team of drivers that we um, kind of send out to be ambassadors for the industry to talk about how to drive safely around um, trucks, to talk about like what their job is, um, to make the invisible just a little bit more visible. Um, and one of the people that used to be on our team, she was a real estate um, broker. Like she sold houses. Um, And then I think that her, her kid, he graduated from high school and she decided to start driving trucks. She works for Walmart now and makes over a hundred thousand dollars a year. Um, as an employee driver, so it's like I could see how um, if you work your way up and um, you work for a company like Walmart, who is able to pay like really good wages, and the bigger companies are able to offer those, you know, like that's why the smaller companies have to compete. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I could see how you could save money and eventually decide to do it on your own, or maybe you know you want someone else to do all of those other things, um, for you. Like personally, like I, I'm not entrepreneurial and I (laughs) like having like, I like having a boss and I like having a job because I don't manage stress well. And I want to be able to walk away from it at the end of a shift and know, like I, I did everything that I could, but ultimately like it doesn't, everything in the world doesn't, land on me. (laughs) (laughs) like totally. I like that. (laughs) That's my personality. But I mean, I feel like some people are just more entrepreneurial and that's not their personality and they can go much farther than I can, (laughs) but... (laughs) <laughs> and I've th- probably for owner operators, that has got to be like a part of your personality to be really successful.
0: Oh, for sure! It sounds super stressful because think you've got truck payments. By the way, I looked they the trucks range anywhere from one hundred and sixty five thousand to two hundred thousand, which oh, in wow. some places would buy you a house. Um, so the payments on that must be wild. I'm sure the insurance is really high. For sure, fuel you have to think about that. Uh, I can't even imagine how much it costs to fill up one of those trucks. It's like an amount I can't imagine. <laughs> um, and, and you know, you have to, you're worrying about weather and, you know, work coming through and all of that. I mean, it sounds, I know my uncle is always really stressed out, always freaking out about yes. something. Um, what are the challenges that drivers face in a regular day?
1: Some of the challenges are just like you have to be alert for all of that time that you're on the road because you're highly aware like the person in the Camry beside me is somebody's sister Mm -hmm. or mom, you know, like there's people's lives that are like right beside your really heavy equipment for hours and hours and hours at a time. Um, and so to me, that is stressful. I'm not a very good driver. Like I, I, just I know I know that about myself and I could never drive a truck
0: um, just because
1: <laughs> my skill set is something totally different. Right. And I can let my I mean part of my creative process is letting myself unfocus for a while. <laughs> um, so my, you know, like the back of my brain can be working on a problem. Um, drivers don't have that luxury. Like you really have to be focused and alert the whole day, you know, like the whole time that you're out there on the road. Um, I'm sure that they get really good at it. And that becomes kind of second nature. Um, So that is a just the safety of it, like all of that is a challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the people around you, like, so many people will not think twice about picking up their phone and looking at it while they're on the highway. Yeah. Um, but it only takes a couple of seconds, truly just a couple of seconds to cause an accident in a case like that. Um, and it takes trucks so, so, so much longer to just slow down, even if they're going the um, speed limit, even if they're doing everything safely, like they can't account for everybody else's behavior on the road. Um, and so being responsible for all of that is a challenge. Yeah. Um, of course, there's the infrastructure. Um, I talked about that a little bit earlier with the bridge um, in my in my region that has um, that has failed and will need to be repaired. Um, I think it may take you know a few months to to actually be repaired and open back up. Our industry, like for every for every day that it's closed, like we're losing millions of dollars because somebody is now having to go find another way across or um, they're sitting in traffic. Um, And all of that is while they're managing, like, here's how many hours my truck is allowed to be on and moving today. So that is a stressor. That is a Mm -hmm. challenge that they're um, like, you're in charge of your own day kind of. Um, Whereas like I don't know for me someone can tell me to go you know like Bethany it's five o'clock go home right um or you know did you get that done like I have control of some things in my day but I actually don't have control of like the traffic and usually that's not a problem I don't I don't travel that far to work um but if you've ever commuted and you have been stuck in traffic like you know that that's It's such a headache. I know people that live in much bigger places, um, LA, like they always talk about the traffic there, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. It's always terrible. Well, if that is your job to just get through the traffic and you have no control of how long that's going (sighs) to take, um,
0: that's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds so miserable to me. I've definitely heard my uncle and my brother because they do the same routes over and over again. And they have Uh sort of like... I don't know, points in mind that they need to reach in a certain time frame, you know, and if they don't, everything's falling apart. And there's been a lot of fretting about things like that, like, well, it's day two, and I should be here. And I'm not.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because when your clock runs out, and for example, you're not at home, maybe you have a route that takes you out for several days at a time before you get to spend time at home. Um, You have to park somewhere. And parking in the in the whole country is a big problem. <laughs> yeah. Because we have more trucks on the road than we used to, but the the parking spaces have not grown at the same rate. And we have more safety laws than we used to. We just know like I don't know, we know more about like how long someone can stay awake and still be like in control and, you know, alert and focused and all those kinds of things. Um, And so we have safety laws that um, try their best to manage that for a whole workforce. Well, when your clock runs out, you have to pull over or else you're, you're out of compliance. Where do you know, like that there's safe parking when your clock is going to run out? Um, Several years ago um, someone could not find safe parking um, and he was, he parked wherever he could find and he was killed at that spot. And so now we have something called Jason's Law, um, where they, you know, put together a group to study, you know, what's happening with parking, how can we improve this situation, it's still a problem, and we still need solutions and actual physical space to put the equipment and the person driving it at the end of their shift. Um, So Not just the safety of like while you're moving, but the safety of while you're not moving is a challenge too. Um, And how you're treated by the shipper. Um, I have really high regard for truck drivers because I have some in my family and now I work with them all the time and I know that their job is really hard. Um, But I think that people have in their mind an image of the truck driver um, that is is not good is Mm -hmm. sometimes pejorative oh my gosh yeah and you know like I just think about like the way that they have been portrayed in media like there was a um I mean so many representations probably that you see of truck drivers um very few of them represent like much of the actual driving force (laughs) um (laughs) You know, like, yeah, okay, maybe there's a piece of what that person wears or looks like that, yeah, some people do. Maybe there's, like, some of that political sway that is a part of the group um, or that, like, religion. Like, some of that, of course, but um, like anything, drivers aren't a monolith. And um, there's a lot of different ways to be a driver, to look like a driver, to act like a driver. and even though like pay may not have kept up with what it used to be like, the job hasn't gotten easier, Mm -mm. you know, like not, I mean, yeah, maybe there's more automatic trucks rather than manual trucks. So maybe that part of the equipment is easier, but like the actual job has not gotten so much easier and yet like respect for the position has not kept up with how difficult and challenging the job is, and so shippers, like where they are going to drop off and provide the service, um, don't always treat drivers well. Like sometimes they won't let them come in to use the bathroom after what? they've been driving for how many hours. Oh. Um, and so, like just knowing, like that the customer is not going to treat you right after you have literally driven across the country for them. Um, That is a challenge that drivers face. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, like all of these are not every day, are not for everyone. Um, But it's enough that like, that we have a problem recruiting drivers. Um, What are some of
0: the other challenges that they face?
1: I mean, you could probably tell me because you have several
0: people in your family. (laughs) I mean, I think you hit them all. I think you also touched on something that I think is really interesting is, which is how... Our society views truck drivers now and like the fact that, you know, movies and television are filled with these very, like, you nailed it, pejorative portrayals of truck drivers as like they're all abusive and cruel and dumb and, you know, what just terrible people. And the reality is it's like it's a highly skilled job. It pays well. You know, like it can provide a middle class life. Um, Mm -hmm. It's really important. And all kinds of people. Drive a truck. Yeah. I think one of the reasons my brother really wanted to be a truck driver when we were kids is because he definitely had watched all of the movies in which Burt Reynolds was a truck driver. (laughs) And I feel like there was this time maybe in the 70s and 80s where like a truck driver was like a sexy thing to be. Um, And then like somewhere along the lines, I mean, as a person who like grew up in a trailer park, it has been called white trash to my face a million times. Right. Being a truck driver, from in many people's minds, you live in the trailer park. You're white trash. You know, like right. that is that is where our culture has settled on that. And I, I'm angry about it all the time, actually, um, because I know what a hard and stressful job it is. And I've definitely heard my uncle talk about certain companies that he's driven for. You know, like clients or what have you, being really shitty at the drop off or the pickup, right? Um, and treating him like a piece of trash and. Mm-hmm we can't live without people trucking our stuff. That's that's where we are right now. So you said that like more there's more trucks on the road than ever. And is that because we order so much stuff online or are we just buying more stuff than ever?
1: I don't think that it's necessarily because there's we're just buying more things online. It's just that like the economy has grown overall. Like yeah, we, there are sense. just more transactions um but certainly e-commerce has driven a different kind of um trucking than used to happen because like when you think about like where were the trucks going from and to like they were going from a warehouse to um a store and mm-hmm. then they were getting put on the shelves and we would go to the store and buy something off of that shelf um now like if you're um buying something online it might come directly to your door. And so in that case, it might go from one warehouse to another warehouse, um, to another you know, like it might go to different distribution centers.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, and then it will get on a different kind of truck, right. To like a, a parcel truck, um, that will drop it off at, your house, um, because in my neighborhood, um, it's not very often that a large truck, like a big eighteen wheeler, can come through the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, like we don't have lines that run down the streets in my neighborhood. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. Um, I mean, every once in a while, when someone's moving, or you know, like it's an unusual day when I see yeah, that happen. I'm it's sure. like UPS and FedEx and like those parcel delivery people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we certainly see like the Amazon vans, but those are truck drivers too. Um, they're a different kind of truck driver, um, but they are still people who are involved in getting it from one place to my door or to you know the place that I'm going to use it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so that has changed. Um, and I wonder if perhaps that will change the way that we it, it's making driving a little bit more visible because it is coming through our neighborhood. Um, it's not just like on the way to work, we see it because when you're at the store, like you don't see where they like pull up behind and drop off, you know, like at the grocery store, like there's, there's the places where they pull up the docks, um, and unload. Um, you never really get to see that. Or if you do, it's like corner of your eye and you walk in where, Everything is already like merchandised and on the shelves and looking good so that, you know, turn all the boxes turned out um, (laughs) so that it's attractive for you to pick something up and easy for you to put in your cart. Um, And I like I get that. It makes it all very frictionless, Um, but um, it's like an opportunity lost to like recognize that work, but we kind of get to see it when it's coming through our neighborhood. But Mm -hmm. in another way, um, the free shipping, like whenever it's all bundled in, like that's what I wrote about. I was like, it kind of like you forget that that's a whole, that's a whole thing that something is in Pennsylvania and it comes to Arkansas is like a couple of days that, that's happening and a person is making it happen. Um, I don't know. Maybe that's like too, (laughs) I'm thinking like way too hard about that. But um, I, I'm not, super anti-capitalist, but like I do want us to recognize and be connected to all of the labor so that we appreciate each other and the work that we do.
0: Oh my gosh, absolutely. I mean, I think it is interesting the way we as customers view shipping because I'm totally the same way. You know, you, you are like, okay, I have $42 worth of stuff in my cart and the shipping is $10 But I could just spend eight more dollars on something I don't really want, but to get that free shipping. And that free thing that I don't really want feels more valuable than the shipping. Yeah. It's weird, right? Because, like, once again, like, man, so many people are touching this stuff before you get it. We got, and you got to pay all the brokers, the dispatchers, the mechanics, the drivers. Let's not forget the people who work at the warehouse. I just read. Right. Wild a wild report in the New York Times about the Amazon hub in New York City um, and what it's been like to work there during COVID. And they had, I just know
1: it's not a good story. Whenever uh, you
0: hear all of those words connected together, I it's know. gonna be terrible. Um I highly recommend it. It's a long read and it is it's it's yeah, it's upsetting. Um I think they did a really good job of trying to make it less upsetting, but they also <laughs> showed some like pictures of very few. I don't even know how they got these pictures to be honest of what it's like to work in there and it is mm-hmm. wild. Thousands of people work in that hub 24 hours a day. And once again, like shipping pays those people too. Right. You know, as a person who's worked in the smaller startup environment where we were, I mean, all companies are are sensitive to the shipping costs because remember they're paying to Get the stuff shipped in, shipped in that they're going to sell you, and then they're paying to ship it back out to you. I mean, it's like both ways, and you know, it can be death by a thousand paper cuts depending on what your entire P and L looks like. And right, we were constantly trying to figure out like how could we shoulder this burden of free shipping because it's become the standard. Yeah, I would love for more and more people to say, "Hey, actually, we don't do free shipping," and this is why, and show. Mm-hmm show the journey of a package, seriously. It kind of, it's shocking, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there needs to be more of that. But like ultimately I can say working on the startup side where we were 100% trying to make the books work with the free shipping, we raise prices to cover that. We pay people on our team less. You know, we outsource Mm -hmm. like our warehouse, for example, because then that warehouse company they do have some efficiencies built in that maybe reduce some of the overhead costs there, but let's be real. They don't pay well to their warehouse workers. Most of them are temps. Right. They can't even count on 40 hours a week. Like this cost, these costs, we're all paying for them, whether we realize it or not.
1: Oh, yeah. Like, so just the bridge that has um, shut down for the night, probably for the whole summer mm. um, here in my area. Um That's costing the industry uh, millions of dollars every day. Um, And that is going to make the things that people buy more expensive. Like, I don't say, like, free shipping is a myth because that just means that suddenly, like, we're not paying drivers, like, that's not the case like i there's abuses in every industry but it's probably just because the person that you are buying it from is taking on that cost themselves that's exactly um, and, right yeah you know and so like none of that disappears it just like is pulled out of your awareness like you don't have to think about it and i just think about like is it a good thing when things get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper because i used to buy fast fashion all the time and now i'm starting to rethink that like The cost of things getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper is that someone that I don't think about because they're never going to be in my life is not getting paid what I think would be fair. And so, if we're able to make those things more invisible, there's an opportunity for abuse to happen. Mm -hmm. Like, not that it is happening right now, but when we're not aware of things, when we're not thinking about things, You know, like, something could be happening in the shadows. Um, And so, like, it may not be on the carrier's end, but it could be on the shipper's end. Like, maybe they, yeah, cut everybody's pay there. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, I'm, there's not, like, a villain in this story, necessarily. I just, like, am sometimes not troubled, but I am, like, I pause whenever there's free shipping because, um It's like, oh, that's like one whole person's job or several people's jobs Mm -hmm. um, that just like are erased out of the equation so that it's more frictionless for me as a consumer. But I'm trying to be a more slow consumer. And so taking those away like removes an opportunity for me to think about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I know that every job I've had, free shipping has been a pain point, right? I know for that for small brands and makers it is brutal because that's just taking money out of their pocket. Oh, yeah. They don't have the opportunity to, you know, renegotiate their shipping costs with UPS or whatever. Like mm-hmm. they just have to pay what it is. And I think it's for a lot of retailers and and I know that Amazon really set the stage for this by offering free shipping, but really, you know, Amazon is making money in a ton of other ways that covers that shipping. So as a consumer, you don't know that. But what happened is Amazon set this tone that shipping should be free. And then suddenly everybody – because even like I said, you're like, why would I waste my money on shipping when I could get a pair of socks instead? You know, like we all have that in our Uh minds. And so then everybody everybody who sells you anything had to adopt this, this policy of free shipping. And I just Mm -hmm. think if we could only go back in time and some of the larger retailers out there – we're really blunt about what you're paying for when you pay for shipping. I think that we would be in a different climate right now with that. But I don't know if that ship has sailed. I don't know. Well,
1: I mean, I think that there might be an opportunity to walk it back a little bit. I think about fast food restaurants and how – um maybe it was after Super Size Me or one of the documentaries that kind of exposed like
0: how many (laughs) calories
1: you're consuming. And now everybody has like on the menu, they have a calorie count. And maybe that doesn't change what you buy, but you are more informed going in when you buy it. Like I'm still going to consume those calories, but I know that they're there now. Like I have a better idea. I'm more in control of um, my diet. And I don't mean diet, like right like trying to lose weight, like my overall like what I'm eating like I I have a metric I have some numbers now to attach to that and whether I assign any meaning to them at all or not like it's there and I wonder like if there is a way for shipping to have that as well like for us to um have that information in some ways like I'm hesitant like do I want metrics and more data (laughs) because like I've like I feel overwhelmed with all of that now and like in some ways feel kind of like icky about it. Like we've turned it data into like this whole other industry and whenever you create an industry like you create solutions and yes, new problems. Yes and so like there's a lot of ways that I'm like every like every company is like well we're data driven and we like gather all this data I was like yeah but you won't know what is important in that data until 20 years from now or until 10 years from now like you're gathering that information but what you're looking at may be something different than is what turns out to be important the fact that you have it is good but like you know like we are still learning like what pieces of information are the most important um, and so, like, do I really want to add a piece of data to, like, the consumer experience?
0: I would say maybe in small <laughs> in small doses. Like, hey, just so you know, when you buy these jeans, they're traveling 785 miles to you. Like, that'd be kind of an interesting yeah, plug-in exactly. to add to a website, um, like, to the checkout experience mm-hmm. or something. I don't know. I'm just throwing ideas out here. But I do think, like, for small brands… <laughs> Makers in our community, resellers, all of that stuff. I think just be like really blunt with people. Like, okay, you wanna you wanna buy this shirt? Well, you know what? USPS is gonna charge me eight seventy five or whatever. That's not a real number. I made that up. Eight seventy five to ship it to you. I don't get a discount on it. If I pay for your shipping, then you're actually only paying me this much for that shirt. That's why you're gonna pay for shipping. You know. And I think yeah. That sinks into people's minds because I think they also think that somehow, since we as customers get all this magical free shipping all the time, that somehow so are the people who are selling stuff. And like That's just not true. I mean, we definitely, at, at one of the companies I worked yeah. for, we ended up going with a third party warehouse that was totally on the other side of the country. I want to say it was in Kentucky, maybe. Um, we went with them even though it's going to be wildly inconvenient for us being on the West Coast because they were able to get us better shipping rates if we used them. And that mm-hmm. was going to allow us to offer free shipping more often. Um, right. So, yeah. I mean, I almost think like the drive for to make free shipping work in retail and selling us stuff um, has actually possibly... Led to situations in which even the carbon footprint of getting things to you is higher. We know a lot of our stuff is is moving around in trucks, and certainly if you go out and actually drive on the highway, you start to become aware of that if you weren't already. But do you see a future in which we don't use trucks anymore? Like I've, I for example, I, at one of my jobs, we tried this service for a couple, I don't know, six months. It ended up being a disaster where a train somehow was picking up all of our stuff from Long Beach and taking it to some hub Mm -hmm. where then it would be shipped across the country via train to Pittsburgh. (laughs) And it ended up being an epic fail for us because actually trains aren't as reliable as you think. Um, And you have a lot less uh, like fluidity with it, I guess. Like if too much – if you receive a ton of stuff Mm -hmm. like early – there's no space for it on the train. So it just sits there anyway. Um, you know, trains derail. I've literally had so many situations in my career where a train derailed and we lost our stuff. (laughs) Like happens more often than you think. Um, what about like driverless trucks? I hear this as a threat all the time. Is that something the industry is really worrying about? Uh, more like embracing.
1: Like because we Mm -hmm. have a driver shortage, we don't think that it's going to put people out of work and like take away that job. But someday it might be able to alleviate the gaps that exist, like maybe just fill in so that we could meet all of the demands that are there. Um, But I don't know that (laughs) I don't know that there will ever be that many trucks in the, I don't know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: 20-year future, 30-year future that like won't have somebody inside of it. Like when you think about like planes, Mm -hmm. like there are pilots in there and they may not be doing something at every moment, you know, like they may not be like (laughs) driving every moment, but part of piloting is still making sure that all the instruments are where they need to be. And um, it's about like the um, takeoff and landing. And um, I mean, maybe we just start calling them instead of drivers pilots, but I think that there will always be a some kind of labor inside of the truck.
0: Oh, yeah, there would have to be, right? Because you need you need that human touch.
1: Yeah, and so, I mean, do we call them really driverless trucks at that point? Like autonomous trucks um, makes a little bit more sense mm-hmm. because they can move on their own. Um, but like they're really not without the driver because the driver can always take over, you know, like is, is always inside yeah. and could take over. Oh,
0: I remember the first time I learned that, pilots weren't literally like two hands on the steering wheel for the entire flight. Uh, oh, yeah. It made me really anxious. <laughs> and then it made me feel better, actually, because I was trying to imagine how someone could fly from, I don't know, New York to Tokyo and not yeah. fall asleep. You know? <laughs> I,
1: I don't remember if it was like Radiolab or This American Life, but I just remember like It was so many years ago when I listened to a podcast on um, autonomous vehicles and public hesitance to it, Uh and they likened it to um, pilots and that technology in planes and how people assumed that if the people weren't in control, then it would be less safe. But really, um, the accidents and the crashes and things went wrong Mostly only when humans took over. Like it was never like, you know, like there were like two incidents where um, it it was I don't think it was even the fault of the equipment. But once the human took over, like there was a much greater chance of something going wrong. Um, of course, now I'm like skeptical because, I, like, I just think of algorithms and engineers, oh. and I'm like, who can I trust? No one. But really, I mean, I think that yes, autonomous um, technology is coming. It's already being used a little bit here in the state. Like, there's pilot programs, um, but I don't think it's going to take away drivers. Like, I just don't think that's going to happen. I think that little by little, there'll be like shifts to what the responsibilities are. And it will probably not – it will be, like, from long treks, like, you know, across the interstate, you know, like, long distances, you could do something like that. But once you are in neighborhoods, you know, like, once it's, like, that final mile, that's the most expensive because that's when things are – there's so much variety in what can happen. Mm-hmm. Like, when you're on the long stretch, um, that's – you can predict what's going to happen. The final mile in trucking is always the most expensive. The final mile of delivery is all, always the most expensive because there's variety in what can happen. And, um, you know, all the different places you deliver might be different. Um, and until like truly, I think our infrastructure will probably, um, if we ever get an infrastructure plan, hopefully will it will include some kind of future proofing so that we could have Infrastructure that talks to vehicles, so that mm-hmm. you know that that could be a part of um, the autonomous situation. But I don't think it's very close. Oh yeah, I think it's
0: <laughs> super far away.
1: Yeah, like they've been talking about it for a really long time. I found a publication from um, where I work, like back from the '60s, wow. and they were predicting um, like something like that, like a highway that is connected somehow to the um, vehicle and the vehicle like they had a little picture of it like where the humans were like talking to each other and not looking at the road. It was like yeah this was always like in our George Jetson like imagination um, but we are still like on the path to realizing that.
0: Oh we're so far away because (laughs) like it would require such a rework of the highway system because you'd probably want to put them in their own lane it would be different, you know, like the, the construction ar- ar- amount involved would be so yeah, massive. Yeah, you want to make
1: the environment like the most conducive to that. Yeah. And like, hopefully, like we'll get to something that's like that. Um, but like, obviously, like we have to just like be able to talk in Washington about like just funding the highways that we have. And that has proved
0: like really difficult. Yes, yes. <laughs> to say to say the least. Well, it was so fun to talk to you today. I hope that everybody who listens to this is going to learn a lot of new stuff. Do you have any final thoughts or wisdom you'd like to share with everyone?
1: Uh, Don't be afraid to pay for shipping. Seriously.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much, Bethany, for not only being my first guest from Arkansas, also, for educating all of us about the trucking industry. I mean, seriously, I learned so much from making this episode, and I hope you learned a lot by listening. I'm so grateful for Bethany's time and expertise, and I will link to Bethany's essay, The Labor Behind Free Shipping, in the show notes. And you can also just go on over to world to find it. It's eye-opening, almost shocking to take a moment to see all of the people actual living breathing humans just like you and me that are involved in making shipping folding sorting selling hauling carrying delivering all of the stuff we buy and when you start to see like really see all of those people all of the work and the equipment, the fuel, the electricity, the maintenance, plastic, paper, all the technology involved in making all of that happen, well, you have to recognize that the prices we do and do not pay, they just don't make sense at all. This week, Danny of Picnic Wear, I know you all know who she is, she shared a little comment convo in her stories. Someone commented on one of her Instagram posts that they wished her line was half the price it really was. And Danny came back with a really strong argument. She pays her workers a living wage, she takes the time to make stuff well, she's not cutting corners or exploiting people. And that's what the price of making a new item and paying a living wage in the United States is. It's not scammy, and it's completely honest and ethical. The problem is that we've all been so confused, so deceived for so long about the true cost of the things we buy. We think stuff should be cheap, plentiful, and the shipping should always be free. But at the end of the day, That's just not possible. And we all pay for free shipping in one way or another. And most importantly, all of the humans who are involved in the stuff we buy, they pay for it the most. It's no coincidence that most of us don't know the full story of how our stuff is made. It's definitely no coincidence that Many people think most stuff is made and shipped by robots. It's also no coincidence that the vast majority of us are completely unaware of the complexity and the time, gas, and sheer manpower required to get our orders to us. Because if we knew how complicated it was, how much work was involved, how much energy and human beings were required, we would start to see that the numbers just don't add up. That there was no way that all of these people were being paid a living wage and working under good conditions because the prices we pay could never cover all of that unless someone was losing out somewhere. And then you bring free shipping into the equation. Well, When you see how complex it is to get something from the shelves of a warehouse to our front porch, you start to see all of the costs from carbon footprint to wages and benefits and everything. You know that free shipping doesn't exist. Retailers count on our ignorance about all of this. They rely on us being blissfully unaware of the human impact of all those hot deals and that free shipping. They don't want us to see the reality of it all because then we will start to question things and we will take our business elsewhere or maybe we'll just buy less stuff in the first place. And when we expect free or discounted shipping from small brands and sellers and makers, We are literally taking money out of their pockets. Asking for or expecting free shipping is really saying, actually, can I just get a discount? Interestingly enough, consumer behavior research has indicated that if a customer was offered a discount of 20% and that 20% discount ended up being $8 versus free shipping that, guess what, also cost $8, Customers rarely opted for the 20% discount and instead almost always chose free shipping because we're obsessed with free shipping. Thanks, Amazon. If you're going to ask a seller for free shipping, just ask them for a discount. That's what you're doing in the first place. But you're probably saying, yeah, but I would feel embarrassed or rude asking for a discount. Like I said, that's what you're doing. Shipping is a luxury when you really think about it. It saves you the time, the frustration, the gas money. You don't have to put on shoes or makeup or call an Uber or look for your subway card. It allows you to acquire things that may not even be available in your area. Shipping opens up the world to you. Why wouldn't you pay for that? It's not a nothing, a random lost fee. It's the cost of all of that labor and gas and time that is required to bring you something from hundreds or even thousands of miles away, something you would have never had access to in the pre-internet era. Seeing the value in shipping is an important step towards seeing the full value of everything around you and of seeing the humans that corporations are hiding from us. See all of that, take it in, and pay for shipping. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, as always, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. And guess what? Next Monday, July 12th, is the first birthday of Close Horse. Yeah, it's been a year to celebrate this very important occasion. I will be doing an Instagram live at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday, that's July 12th, where I'll be talking about clothing rental. I know we have a lot to discuss there, and I'm sure you'll all have a lot of questions. You're probably wondering, why am I an expert in this area? Well, because before the pandemic, I helped launch a new clothing rental brand. So, I've done copious amounts of research into that industry, and I have a lot of knowledge to share with you. So please start chilling your boozy seltzer now, put on a cute outfit, and I will see you then. If you want to support my work on Closehorse, Horse, please consider becoming a patron. I will appreciate it so much. You'll get access to exclusive episodes. You'll receive some cool Clothes Horse swag. You'll get that warm and fuzzy feeling of doing something good and making my day. And if that all sounds good to you, you can learn more at patreon.com slash Clothes Horse Podcast, or you can send a one-time contribution via Venmo to Crystal underscore Visions. Thanks, as always, to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye!